0: Welcome to the Deep Dive. I'm Larry Kamer. The Deep Dive is an in-depth discussion of some of the most important issues facing us here in the Napa Valley and in wine country. Uh, On our program, we try and bring you insights, information, uh, and guests that you may not hear anywhere else. We originate from the studios of KVON in beautiful Napa, California. Our new programs air every Thursday morning at 9 o'clock. And you can always listen to our past programs uh, at the website kvon.com. I'm always happy to hear from you and especially welcome your suggestions for future discussions and possible guests. Please email us, deepdive Show at windownmedia, W I N E, windownmedia.com. Uh, we're on Twitter and Instagram at Deep Dive Show, and I invite you to like our Facebook page, uh, Deep Dive Show. If you're interested in some of our past conversations you can find them all on kvon.com i would especially encourage you to listen to last week's discussion with our district attorney uh, allison haley here of napa county Um, you can hear that and all of our previous interviews at kvon.com today i'm talking with rob mcmillan the evp and founder of the silicon valley bank wine division It goes without saying that all of us who live in this valley are in one way or another heavily dependent on the success of the wine industry. We tend to think about wine at at so many different levels. Uh, We think about it in very lofty ways. Um, People talk about it being integral to the human spirit. We talk about the delight it brings people, um, the catalyst for great conversations or great deals or great love affairs. Um, and I do really think, <clears throat> excuse me, I do really think that some of that intangible, mysterious quality of wine uh, really does inspire a lot of the people I've met in the, in the wine world. Uh, producing grapes and wine is, of course, an art and a science. Some of the viticulturists and vineyard manager and, and field workers that I've met are incredibly technically competent at what they do. Um, but ultimately, and this is the subject of our discussion today, it's a business. And in 2020, this business has a lot to be concerned about. Uh, The budgets of baby boomers as we crossed the retirement line, uh, the tastes of millennials and Gen Zers who may be much more inclined to order a craft beer or a cocktail uh, over a glass of wine or a bottle of wine, Uh, the popularity of alcohol-infused sodas and other drinks. Um, I've yet to have a White Claw, but I, I see them all over the place. And the enormous potential for competition and maybe even synergy at some point with the cannabis industry. So Rob's report is called The State of the U.S. Wine Industry 2020. It's one of the more interesting things I've read in a long time. And I spent a lot of time poring over his arguments, his statistics, and his Graphs, Uh, I am still channeling my inner school grad student, I think, Uh, and that was a long time ago. So, um, off the top, I want to just talk about a couple of quick things before we get to uh, our conversation with Rob. Uh, We are going to the polls again on Tuesday, this coming Tuesday, also known as Super Tuesday where voters in 14 states are going to choose a huge number of the delegates who will ultimately nominate the Democratic nominee. Uh, I'm not forgetting about you Republicans, but that contest is pretty much a foregone conclusion. My pitch to you today is do not ever take your right to vote or the importance of your vote for granted, even if you are voting on the losing side. Here's why. Around the time I was born, um, people were still being killed to protect the right to vote for certain portions of our population, most especially African Americans. We tend to think of civil rights protests in the South, but voter intimidation was rampant all over the country. And when intimidation didn't work, voters were made to take so-called poll tests. And if this seems like a ridiculous idea to you today, remember this was not all that long ago. You were forced to answer questions that were designed to confuse you in order to exercise your right to vote. One of those questions was spell backwards, forwards. Another one was print the word vote upside down but in correct order. You're given 10 minutes to do this, and if you didn't make a perfect score, you're not allowed to go in and vote. This is your constitutional right as an American citizen. Not only is it denied to you, but for good measure, you're made to feel small and like an idiot in front of your neighbors. Now, from my perspective, I vote because I'm tired of pundits, Twitter trolls, Russian hackers, bots, and others who presume to represent my point of view or to speak for me. And pundits whose outright predictions uh, are often wrong, made without any factual basis uh, and without any consequence. I mean, most of us, if we make a prediction and we're wrong, uh, we have to pay a price for it. I know uh, my guest does if he's wrong in his, uh, in some of his predictions. And I know I am too with my clients. So it's only February. The general election is more than eight months away, but I really kind of want all these people to shut up right now. So think of voting as one way to get your opinion out there and to get them to stop talking. I also vote because I have seen literally, literally how my vote makes a difference. Uh, When I was in college, I worked very hard for my local congressman, And even though that was a long time ago, it is still in my mind as some of the most rewarding work I've ever done. And we flipped a congressional district from red to blue. We had more than 213,000 people come out and vote in that election in 1976. And my guy won by 201 votes. I knew that like the other people who were cheering our victory that election night, my vote and the votes of the people that I influenced to go to the polls made up those 201 votes that made that victory possible. Think about this, too. Uh, voter turnout is two to three times higher among people over age 65 than among people aged 18 to 24. Senator Sanders talks about a revolution that's going to result in massive voter turnout and massive voter turnout among young people. Uh, I really do hope that happens, but uh, remember that older voters vote at a rate three times higher. Voter turnout is also double among wealthy people compared to poor people, and about double with those who have graduate degrees compared to those with a high school diploma. Now, when I lived in Chicago, we used to joke that you should go out and vote early and often. Uh, All I'm asking you to do today is to vote twice next Tuesday, March 3rd, and then again on Tuesday, November 3rd. So on today's program, I'm talking with Rob McMillan, the author of The State of the Wine Industry 2020. Rob, I really want to thank you for joining me on the show today. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. I imagine, Rob, that you did not just fall to earth as a wine business expert. Uh, I'm interested in, in a little bit about your background and how you, how you got here.
1: Well, I grew up in uh, in Concord, East Bay, and uh, back in the day, we were in a marching activity, marching group called the Blue Devils, and we marched in parades. And uh, my my parents would drag us up here for the Napa parade, and uh, there's also a Calistoga parade. And they would stay at Both A Park, and they would do tastings back in the in the '60s, and that's when it was free. Uh, so. So I had always had an interest in it from that standpoint, and my older brother used to tell me that if I didn't stop whining, they were going to send me to the winery.
0: <laughs> winery. <laughs> so
1: that was that was another uh, that was another point. And then um, uh, when I uh, graduated from Sac State, they uh, my first assignment was as an ag lender in uh, Lakeport, which was not a great place to be for a single young male, uh, but uh, but that's where I was, and um, and my first account was. To a small winery up and coming by the name of Chateau du Lac, which was later uh, renamed uh, Kendall Jackson and now Jackson Family Wine. So uh, for some reason, wine just has continued to cross my path, whether I wanted it to do that or not.
0: Right. And the origin of the Silicon Valley Bank wine division, these are not two kind of concepts that I think a lot of people put together in their head, Silicon Valley and wine. How did that business come about?
1: Well, yeah, and and actually, when when I first came up to to Napa, we started the practice in 1994. First coming up here, that's the same question we got all the time. I you know I understand, um, I understand the wine industry in Napa, and I understand the technology industry in Silicon Valley. But how does how does wine work in the Silicon Valley? And... Um, what ended up happening way back when in the early 90s is we decided we were going to go look at specific businesses that other banks shied from. And so the wine industry, as people maybe have a hard time remember, wasn't so successful in the late 80s and, um, and into the early 90s. But I noticed when I was doing my research that there was this small turn. And the, though we were seeing declines in volumes back then – Uh, Underneath it, there was this premium category that seemed to be trending up, and I thought that was tied to boomers, and so I made the argument that that would be a good business to get into. Uh, Other banks weren't in it. As a matter of fact, the other banks, when we started, that were doing it, thought they had too much market share, and they were our best referral sources. So uh, it ended up, uh, at first, kind of being difficult for people to understand, but since there were really no banks that were aggressively prosecuting the business... Business
0: was flying in the door, so um, so they didn't care that you were Silicon Valley. <laughs> they got over it pretty fast. <laughs> I, my my favorite kind of Silicon Valley and wine story is a friend of mine um, bought a place in Woodside, and he's he's quite a successful guy, and he put in grapes. You know, like everybody else, he wanted to be a farmer, and he put in grapes. And one day I was at his house and I said, how's that going? And he said, well, let me pour you a glass. He said, it'll be the most expensive wine you've ever had in your life <laughs> by the price of the, what this glass cost. So in the report, um, the state of the wine industry, you attempt to balance out the good news with some of the more ominous stuff that you see on the horizon. So, But to my kind of non-expert eyes reading it, uh, i The net net of the report struck me as cautionary, maybe even negative. Um, is that a fair assessment yeah
1: um, people uh, last year actually when i when I said we were in a point of oversupply and declining consumer demand on a volume basis, uh, everybody said that uh, I was just doom and gloomer uh, that 's I said that last year um, and that 's in January and uh, by the end of the year, it was pretty clear we, we had oversupply. And uh, what I noticed is, again, is a trend accelerated. Um, and uh, there's only one analyst now at this point that actually thinks we have positive volume growth um, as an industry. Um, so, yeah, it, it, positive, negative, I, I just have a tendency to look at things the way they are and say what I believe. Um, I'm not, uh, fortunately, I work for, for an organization that doesn't really... Censure me that much. Or play favorites. Or, yeah, they you know. just they kind of let me say what I what I believe, and so I've I think I've gained a reputation as as being mostly honest, <laughs> as much as I can be, and um, and yeah. So the the industry has got some major issues ahead. The trends are not moving in the right direction. It's not all you know. It's not all doom and gloom really. Uh, the fine wine industry, the Napa Valley in particular, is probably growing around 5% um, on a dollar basis, more flat, more flat on a, uh, pardon me, on a dollar basis, more flat on a volume basis. So it's not, you know, it's not like it's terrible, Um, but the trends are consistent year over year, over year, over year now for probably for the last five. And, you know, if you don't arrest a trend, if you don't do something to arrest a trend, then more than likely that trend will continue. And so that's, that's where I spend most of my time now is to talk about you know, A, what's happening. Hopefully we have people that are recognizing now uh, and accepting the issues and, and challenges that we have as an industry. And then after that, I start to talk about things we can do to uh, improve the situation.
0: Yeah, which I want to, which I really am interested in getting into. Um, I, I, I want to start kind of at the basics though, you know, planted acres, price of grapes, availability of Jews, draw us a picture of where we are here in the Napa Valley and maybe relative to other, other regions. Napa
1: Valley is one of the top, uh, one of the top AVAs, Appalachians, um, in the world. Um, and to the extent that the Napa Valley uh, has that kind of notoriety, um, there is some level of insulation from general economic trends, simply because, um, you know, you're selling very expensive wines in large part to more wealthy people. Um, so. You know, the Napa Valley is at that pinnacle. Um, You know, that said, this last year, and it's happened before, but this last year we had grapes that weren't picked. Hard to say how much. Um, uh, We have a grape crush report that comes out, and uh, just Cabernet was off about 20% from last year. From the actual amount of grapes that were picked. From the actual amount of grapes that were picked, right. And uh, so, you know, it's hard to compare it because you don't really know You know true yields and what didn't get picked doesn't show up in the grape crush report so uh uh, but you know it's it's obvious that there was somewhere between 10 and the high side 20 percent not picked um it's also backed up into the bulk wine category um but you know the napa valley is makes great wine and so uh, yeah i've noticed we'll we'll see uh, we'll see that bulk wine get pulled out here pretty quick and and it already is and it'll go into lower priced goods and we'll, we'll clear the channel.
0: You said though, that you speaking of the oversupply, you, you cite oversupply at like every single stage of the supply chain yeah. all the way from the field to retail. Um, and you call this the worst combination of market conditions since 2001 and perhaps all time. Yeah. Why do you come to that conclusion?
1: Well, the issue is declining consumer demand. And, uh, and so, in the past thirty-plus years, you, know, you have to go back to '93 to see the last time that we actually had volume declines. Um, and so that you're talking about gross volume declines, gross volume, overall volume, declines. yeah, and it, not 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 Napa per particular, but the industry as a whole. So you got to go back a very long way, and you have to, you know, think about what was going on back then. That was Mother Mother's Against Drunk Driving. That was Lowering of the uh, blood alcohol limit, drunk driving. Uh, A lot of things were happening back then that was driving down volume. It was also coming off uh, an era where we had wine coolers, and uh, the the boomers were drinking a lot of wine coolers. That all kind of that faddish thing kind of came to an end at the same at that same point. Um, But the premium side, like I said earlier, had some demand growth underneath it. So we see what, what we do now with uh, this rotation of consumers off of the boomers into the younger consumer. And the younger consumer doesn't have the same affluence. Uh, and they never do, by the way. You know, you start off young, you, you know, boomers didn't have right.
0: affluence either. The question is, will, this, will these, my kids, the millennials, you know, will the economics allow them to get to you know to par with where their parents were yeah and And there's a real question there's a question but but just
1: looking at it from a current state it's there's two questions is if they had the money would they buy wine
0: yeah and when uh, i was 30 no
1: no no uh you know i mean well you know when i was 18 19 or whatever it was i would you know steal from my dad's Jug underneath the the counter next to the garbage disposal in perfect storage <laughs> conditions,
0: and fill it back up with water. So just be sure you were drinking wine and not like a uh, you know, cleanser or something. Yeah. Like
1: that. So I, you know, I think when you're young and you're and you're going through uh, your experience, you, you know, stage where you're just saying, you know, do you like spirits? Do you like wine? Do you like beer? Um, I think everybody kind of goes through that, and price pays a plays a, a large role in that. As you start to work through your career, you you evolve. Most people believe that that's a normative process, that that's what everybody does. But, you know, once again, I think people have blinders on because we we have 30 years of, of growth because of the boomers, because the boomers moved to premium wine. But the circumstances aren't here now to see that same thing repeat. And people forget that back in 93, 94, uh, we really didn't have craft spirits and we really didn't have craft beer. So if you wanted premium any alcohol, it was kind of wine. And uh, and so that's very different now. Today, the the consumer doesn't really identify as a wine drinker, beer drinker, or spirits drinker. They're drinking across categories. Mm-hmm. Um, so the competition isn't Paso Robles or Willamette Valley. The past, the, the competition really is... Spirits, spirits are, are seeing some very nice growth, and uh, and wine isn't. So,
0: and to, we'll get into some of the economics that make that gives spirits a competitive advantage, and just a, in just a sec. That's right. I, I you know, it's funny. My, uh, I have a um, peculiar notch in um, in kind of my timeline in that uh, I grew up in uh, the state of New Jersey, which, like many states in the seventies, dropped the drinking age to eighteen. And I think the theory at that time was, uh, look, you're old enough to vote. You're old enough to fight and die for your country because we were still in Vietnam. That's right. Uh, you're old enough to raise a family. You ought to be old enough to have a beer,
1: or it, a tequila sunrise, in my case. Well, and it was 18
0: for for
1: everything <laughs> that's, that's in so I'm saying tequila. That's where my first tequila sunrise. <laughs> well, was in New saying, Jersey.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so in high school, I was legal. Then I go to Chicago to go to college, where the drinking age is 21. So I'm legal in high school, but not legal in college. And to make it even more fun, I lived in Evanston, which was a dry town in the home of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. So getting a drink was, was a real labor. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you another quote. You say retiring wine-loving baby boomers are now being replaced by more spirits-loving millennials and now Gen Zers who confuse, con, excuse me consume less alcohol than prior generations. We need to attract those young consumers but are doing a poor job of that. Yeah. That's pretty damning.
1: Well, yeah. Um, you know, our, our industry is traditional to start, um, and it's, uh, it's a family-based industry. Um, even Gallo, which is the largest winery in the world, is, is family-owned. So the smaller wineries make up the, the dominant uh, number Uh, of wineries Uh, obviously the the top ones make up the volume that are selling more uh, less or the less expensive wines Um, about the 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 first 13 wineries by production size make up about 75 percent of total wine sales so everybody else it's pretty much everybody in the Napa Valley um, you know has to has to look at things from a different perspective and with all this growth we've had for so long it gets really easy to keep doing what you did the day before, <laughs> um, and and I and I think probably one of the harder things to do in business, no matter where you are, is to uh, A see trends that are coming in front of you, and then B decide to make changes when things are going okay. Um, it's really easy to make changes when things aren't going okay because you go well. Oh, what have I got to lose? What have I got to lose? Right, and 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 the truth is, is we have a lot to lose unless we do make changes. So, uh, just as an example, you know, the the older consumer, um, you know, when when we grew up, we wore our affluence on our sleeve. That was a a measure of success. We we wore our Jordache jeans, our Izod t shirts. Uh, we probably wore a belt with some label on it, even, and, <laughs> and uh, Ray-Ban sunglasses, and drove BMWs, big watch. Yeah, we liked medals and trophies, and uh, you know, we, we liked that uh, that successful recognition. And that's really an anathema for the young consumer to, to look at uh, at that kind of conspicuous, financial conspicuous, yeah. yeah, conspicuous consumption and yeah. financial success. They yeah. just they're not into that, and yet. We've kind of grown this wine industry on Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous.
0: It's interesting because I, you know, just thinking about how I became interested in wine, it happened through work. It happened through work gatherings. You know, I, when, when we moved here in the mid eighties, we, we were not, we didn't really know much about wine. We'd moved here from Chicago, which is, you know, more of a beer town. Or as I like to call it, uh, Chicago is a great drinking town with a sports problem. Um, but, but we started going out with our colleagues, uh, and we were in San Francisco, and all of a sudden, all this wine starts showing up, and it's pretty damn good. It's good. You know, and my boss, like, knew his way around a bottle of wine, and so, so we had that experience. But I have to believe that changing work experiences probably changed that for, for people who are coming up in the work world as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, there's there's a uh, uh, obviously. Well, you go back to the '90s, and and we had things like uh, the French uh, paradox. You know, the yes. 60 Minutes Morally Safer com- comes out and says, you know, the uh, I think Serge Renaud was the science, scientist and who said that you know the French are having all these fatty. Diets, and yet they have lower incidence of coronary heart disease, and and
0: so right they eat all uh, that butter and cheese, and they smoke cigarettes, but they drink wine, and that was that's
1: what it was attributed to. And immediately after that, red wine sales just spiked. Um, And then after was health food. We had the Mediterranean diet that came out long before then, but it really became popular in that same period. And then um, another guy, uh, Arthur, I think his name was Klatsky, um, identified the J-shaped curve, which showed that. Uh, those that imbibed mo- moderately of any alcohol uh, were had su- more successful health outcomes than those that even abstained. And then, of course, the other side—you uh, you can't uh, deny the the other side, which is, you know, drunk driving and and abuse and all that stuff as well. But but moderate consumption was viewed as being a healthy outcome, um, and that's not the case anymore. We've we've lost that argument, um, not so much because of the science, but because the industries have largely stopped talking about uh health and wine or health and beer and health and spirits it's um uh, the spirits producers are actually doing something along those lines and that's probably our, some of our blueprint for change
0: yeah i mean I, i'm keen to talk to you about this uh on the uh, on the other side of our break uh being a, a kind of marketing communications person myself and seeing how wine talks about itself, beer, spirits, cannabis, and, you know, in kind of a health and wellness context. Yeah. And what's being done to actually combat f- attacks that are still, you know, very real. Yeah, still we have a,
1: th- there is a anti-alc lobby and um, and a movement and it's, it's uh Uh, well-funded, you know, the Bill Gates Foundation is a big contributor to that, but the World Health Organization has got their own agenda that that contributes to it. And, uh, And believe it or not, not all science is true. Um,
0: some <laughs> some
1: science is paid, and, and, of course, everybody's got their own bias. Um,
0: well, and it but, pays to understand what science does and what it doesn't do.
1: Yeah, we have this belief that science is science, and if it's science, then it must be, must be perfectly accurate. And, uh, right. and science evolves over time to, to just as a starting point. But, you know, when you see things such as uh, came out this last year that um, – a study, quote-unquote, that was done and funded. I think Bill Gates Foundation funded part of this, and it said that uh, one bottle of wine a week is like smoking 10 cigarettes. Oh, please. And, um, I mean, on the surface it sounds pretty strange, but, it, it, you know, it gets a lot of press, and, you know, it's the cumulative effect of, of all of those kinds of statements that eventually lead a consumer to say, you know what, wine, it's just not its not good for you. I mean, it's like smoking cigarettes. I'm going to have a white claw.
0: Mm-hmm. I remember when uh, Supersize me came out, I was working. One of my clients was a big fast food chain and, you know, their argument was, look, if you go into Starbucks and order, you know, triple caramel lattes and eat only that every day, you're going to look like this guy who ordered big Macs and, and large fries and, and milkshakes that, you know, at least some of these um, uh, producers are trying to find you at all points on the spectrum. So if you want to go into McDonald's and get a salad, you can get a salad. I don't imagine most people go into McDonald's to get a salad, but it's important to them to offer that choice. And when we come back after the break, I want to talk to you about how the beverage industry is responding, because uh, you have some interesting insights in your uh, in your report as well. Yeah. Um, talking with Rob McMillan of Silicon Valley Bank, uh, I'm Larry Kamer, and this is The Deep Dive. Welcome back to the Deep Dive, I'm Larry Kamer. We're talking today with Rob McMillan, author of the State of the Wine Industry 2020 Report. Uh, Rob is from the Silicon Valley Bank, and we've been talking about um, the effects of oversupply here in the Napa Valley. Uh, and we were most recently before the break talking about um, the changing tastes of, of wine and spirits drinkers, uh, from people our age to people our kids' age uh, and what that means. Um, I, Rob, I, I kind of want to go back and talk about myself here for just a second. Um, yeah. <laughs> so you say in your report that in the next six years, about 28 million Americans are going to cross uh, into retirement, cross into the age 66. Uh, that's true in my case. Uh, and that 30 million people are going to turn 40. Um, that's a lot of buying power to ignore. So talk about that. Yeah, and um, the, the reality is
1: we're already seeing the impact of uh, an increasing number of – it's not a linear thing. There's more and more boomers uh, every day um, that are uh, crossing that 66. Every single year, there there are more than the prior year uh, right. for the next uh, 9 or 10 years. So. Right. Um, as you get closer to retirement, you change your spending patterns. You start to think about how much you really have, and you might even make uh, you know, relocation decisions if you haven't planned. And the, and the overwhelming evidence suggests that most of the boomer generation hasn't done a great job of planning. So it's not out of the uh, realm of reality to expect uh, this generation that has been a, a credit generation spending on credit, um, brought up on credit, uh, pulling back and and
0: not easy credit it, to, in a lot of cases. It's
1: very and actually tax deductible. Re- retail credit back in the 80s was tax right. deductible. That's the way we were brought up. So right, um, you know, different different generation now. Uh, not only have they gone through the the great recession, they got a late start on their careers and a lot of life events. But um, you know, they they don't believe in credit. They've seen the bad side of it. Um, they're savers, which is obviously a good thing. Uh, I think they. Believe that they won't see Social Security for their own retirement, and uh, so they're putting away money, and you know all those things. Though dampen retail. We're a retail economy, and um, and all those things. Whether you're a boomer that's becoming more frugal, or you're a young consumer just starting out. Um, and and by the way, when we talk about millennials, they're they're 38, 39 now at the at the at the edge. So. You know, they're not in footed pajamas eating uh ger animal cereal anymore. They're, they're well, actually, maybe
0: some of them are, but well,
1: no, <laughs> I think the I think on the other end, there, it's 23 or 24, so right. Uh, so you know, that whole large generation is uh is moving into their uh you know spending years, they're starting to develop households, families. Um, but they're, they're, again, they're more frugal spending um, people. So, you know, we see the same thing across both generations. We're, we have more frugal consum- consumers today.
0: Well, and you talk about, I, I love this expression that you use in the report um, in the State of the Wine Industry 2020. You talk about millennials having a, a, an outlook of frugal he- hedonism. Yeah. Frugal hedonism. Yeah. Um, which means, among other things, they're put off by high restaurant prices for wine. Um, what, how else does this frugal hedonism manifest itself? Well, it, they
1: know what good is. And, uh, they, and with wine, they understand good wine largely. Um, uh, they have more uh, access to better information than certainly their, their parents' generation. Um, but uh, they, don't, they don't spend the same way. Uh, it's, it's fairly common to see... Uh, somebody shop for used clothing or repurposed goods. uh, Without the stigma. Flea markets, yeah, without the stigma from the boomer generation. You know, if you were, if you shopped at Goodwill when you were a boomer, you know, you you felt like a real loser. Right. Um, And today I watch the, you know, the young consumers, they'll walk into Goodwill, they'll buy something, they'll put a, you know, their own design or something on it. uh, And, you know, but they don't live their life that way. They're just more cautious about where they spend their money and then they'll go buy buy a thousand dollar iphone and an apple watch Mm -hmm. Um, so they're just more selective about the things that they spend their their money on um maybe not on cars maybe it's uber instead
0: but you say that the this cohort millennials and i i'm surrounded by millennials i have two of them myself and uh, my wife and i have two of them and uh, I teach in graduate school, so i'm you know and then I work with a lot of millennials in our business. Um, but you say that this cohort um, has not really begun to embrace wine and anecdotally from what I see that that does seem to be the case. Um, so how does the industry what does the industry got to do to change that
1: well that's where the sales and marketing has to change. Um, you know we we in the uh, wine industry you have grown up talking about long days and cool nights and pHs and harvest dates. Um, and, you know, you read the back of a label and it just sounds so glorious. Uh, you know, it's got hints of, of, you know, graphite. I don't know, the, I don't know that that's ever been glorious for me, but, you know, graphite cedar box and olalaberry or something. Right, like well, I, I,
0: can I, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I have to tell you for this, a very, very funny story. Several years ago, uh, my wife and I went up to Amador County to taste the wines up there. And I, I really enjoy the wines up there and, um, the tastings were all still free. And so we, we hit a few wineries and at the end of the day, we walked into this one winery and I, I wish I could remember the name of it, but it was very old school. You know, you pulled into the, the, uh, dirt parking lot, chickens ran out of the way, these old saloon doors when you came in. And the guy starts pouring us uh, Zinfandel. And he says, folks, you know, it's the end of the day. I imagine you've all been out wine tasting. I imagine you've had wine that tastes like, you know, cocoa and and uh, cigar boxes and, you know, hints of blueberry and blah, blah, blah. He said, here, we make wine that tastes like wine,
1: yeah. <laughs>
0: which, I, which I thought was so hilarious. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, um... You know the, the descriptors actually even even tend toward uh, stuffiness, which again that young consumer is is uh, is shunning. Right. So when you look at when you look at the spirits category, um, uh, as an example, uh, Kettle One vodka was not doing all that well, um, and then they put the word botanical in it and when you read the front of a kettle one uh, vodka bottle now it's you know bo- botanicals with natural infusion uh, botanicals and, and you know and you know they so the words that are used they don't say it's good for you but they use the, you know the words like sustainable um, oh as another another one that i saw a um, uh, this is a caffeinated beverage and it says 90 milligrams of natural caffeine. Hmm. I, I don't know what artificial caffeine is, but uh, maybe there is some. But, uh, you know, you see the spirits makers trying to leverage terms that are close to healthiness. And, yeah, uh, well, no,
0: nothing new about that. I mean, even back in the 20s, you know, marketers were selling uh, dove, or, excuse me, ivory, because it was whiter than other white soaps. Yeah. It's the whitest white soap. And good for your skin, too, I'm yes. sure. Yes, and it floats. <laughs> and it did float, that's right. Uh,
1: so, you know, it's that, you look at what's happening with spirits, right? And spirits are are, are growing, even even though the consumer is consuming less alcohol uh, than prior generations right now. And, um, you know, that's what we have to look at. We, we have to start talking about, Here's the, here's the odd thing is I think what we have as a young consumer that doesn't know that wine is exactly the beverage that they're looking for. You know, if, if you're looking for something that's artisanal, that's craft, um, or that is organic, natural right? or
0: plant-based. Mm. You know? Plant-based wine. <laughs> Try our plant-based wine. Our
1: plant-based wine, right? Um, you know, there's, there's nothing like... Like wine, it's been around ten thousand years. Uh, actually, I think a little bit more than that. I was over in the Republic of Georgia, and they have the earliest evidence. And I think it was fourteen thousand years ago. Um, so, uh, you know, been around a very, very long time. Uh, it's better than it was fourteen thousand years ago for sure. And um, we but just who can check really. We just got to stop talking about long days and cool nights and and lifestyles of the rich and famous. We need to adopt this young consumers' values, and we need to start talking about. Um, the way that the, the wine is sustainable. We need to start talking about the carbon footprint of the, of uh, the, the things that we do. Um, we have to st- start talking about the fact that it is, you know, m- maybe gluten-free or there's no sugar or no added sugar for that matter. Or low in carbs. Or, <laughs> or low in carbs. Yeah. yeah. All, all the things that, that signify some sort of health. Now I, I don't think we need to make a cartoon out of the front of our labels because uh, especially in the Napa Valley w- you know we have a uh, a luxury product but the the pushback that i get from producers right now are well that's not the way we present our goods and i my response is well keep presenting them the way you want them now i i think to the to a large extent the very expensive wines uh, of the Napa Valley are still sold to a large extent almost exclusively to those boomer consumers so they're not going to care if you are marketing to a young consumer. They're, they're still happy that you're marketing uh, in a way that
0: they're familiar. Right. That'll sell a $300 bottle of wine or a $1,000 bottle of wine. But
1: inevitably, we all have to make this adjustment because this is a new consumer with different values. And I don't care what you're selling. Uh, you've got to adopt uh, their values and the things that are important to them uh, because that's sales and marketing.
0: You talk in the report about something you call share of gullet which I thought was a pretty interesting expression just to talk about how, um, wine and beer and spirits and maybe even cannabis do compete in a lot of the same ways. And then a lot of same ways they're appealing to very different people yeah. under very different circumstances. But the numbers you cite are really compelling. You say it costs a dollar two for a 12 ounce beer, 88 cents for a shot of whiskey or a shot of booze, but $1.51 for a five-ounce pour of wine, and you say it's easy to see why spirits and beer are winning over wine with young people just on price. Well, it's,
1: they have an advantage with price. Uh, the spirits producers have an advantage on cost they produce all I have to do is turn the water on um, and
0: so it's uh, I just love this yeah it's water and industrial ethanol right? yeah, yeah isn't that a white claw I mean, well it
1: is it is kind of a, a a white claw which is you know again once once again amazing that the young consumer believes that white claw spike seltzers are actually more healthy for you than uh, than wine and and one of the main reasons is they actually post the fact that they have a hundred calories on it and I ask people all the time how much how much how many calories do you think is in a bottle of wine? And and even people in the industry, they they all ask the same questions. They go, well, what size serving? Uh, You know, try five ounce or what uh, (laughs) are you talking? red or white? And then, and then after you get through those introductory, they they all say, well, uh, it depends. Or they'll say it has about, uh, you know, 120, 50 calories. I, I, I don't know. And, therein lies the problem. It, it, these young consumers look at calories as part of health mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, they've been trained by, uh, all the, the health folks that have pulled all of the vending machines out of, uh, all of the high schools and intermediate schools to, to make sure we weren't drinking sugared, uh, sodas. And, and, uh, and so they're, they're looking at calories. They've been trained to look at calories. Um, and we don't put calories on wine bottles. That's a, that's a miss.
0: Glass of wine is how many calories? What should the answer be? What's the short answer? Well,
1: my, my short answer is there's about 750 per bottle. So that's my serving.
0: Okay. (laughs) But even Coke talks about how a Coke is 150, but 150 calories a can, you know, they are not shy about, you know, about even when the calories are high, advertising that because they may not be as high as you think they are.
1: Well, Coke is another great example about marketing because, uh, as I mentioned you know, all of their, the pressure about sodas and diabetes that, that has been on them. And, you know what they've done is they've taken their 12 ounce cans or 10 ounce cans, whatever they were They'd before, and, they, cans. and they've turned them into uh, they've turned them into seven and a half ounces. Right. You know, the, again, the Boomer generation. We thought, okay, we weren't going to pay for packaging, so we end up with these three liter bottles of soda, three liter bottles of soda. Now it's flipped on its head. the The younger consumers want to know how many calories it is. So, Coke just says, well just cut. Cut the size in half, or whatever. So it's seven and a half ounce, and and that category uh, for Coke is flying off the shelf. The right, little small cans.
0: Because you know it, it's lower calorie, and that's what because they put. you can't drink more than what's in the can, right? And that's what they say. It's lower calorie. Well, okay, it's it's lower cal. That's marketing. Uh, well, it's uh, you know, speaking as in defense of marketing, it's also the truth. Right. But it's what they choose to put forward as kind of the, the first thing they, they punch a consumer with. And, you know, as a
1: serving, the young consumer looks at that and well, that's, that's all I'm going to drink. I'd rather drink a smaller can. So it, it,
0: again, it plays to their values and we don't do that. I, one of the things that I'm always struck by is I I just sense that most people who are in the store buying wine, uh, you know, unless, I mean, up here, it's probably very different, but. One looks the same as the next. Like, I know I want a Chardonnay, but, uh, you know, w- a nice label is going to draw me to that. Or a nice price is going to draw me to that. Do you think that more information on the label would actually be helpful? Nutrition information or some of these other attributes, you know, like plant-based or, or some of those things?
1: Um, s- some, uh, but the label is only a component of marketing and sales. Um, and, I, I, you know, there's when people are in shopping they're going to make very quick decisions so uh one of the things that i'm encouraging the industry to do is to to move away from these lengthy descriptions in the back of bottles and you know start inspired by generations of start using uh you know pithy statements um you know naturally farm from sustained sustainable vineyards uh, uh, reduced carbon footprint you know whatever whatever you but you know put them in bullet points instead of these long uh, sentences is because, anybody actually doing that uh, there's a couple uh, and I have them in my presentation one in particular that I that I found but but very few and very few actually
0: uh, use calories as well so yeah we have a long way to go um, you talk in your report, you know, you make this linkage between um, oversupply and the choices that uh, vineyards and farmers have now on what to do with their land, given this oversupply of grapes, uh, especially those who own their, who grow their own grapes. You know, we're well past the days where fruits and nuts and and cattle are gonna be a big alternative, a sustainable alternative in the Napa Valley. Yeah. which brings the question of cannabis to mind. Now, for the proponents, the economics of cannabis are pretty compelling. You can harvest it more than once a year, which is more than you can say about grapes. Uh, the cash value per acre is very high. And yet here in Napa, we're taking a deliberate, uh, go slow approach on commercial cultivation. Um, and the reasons that the, the County Board of Supervisors and others cite have to do with compatibility of growing with wine, um, impact on neighboring grape cultivation, water use, crime. Um, But we look at places like Sonoma County, Santa Barbara County, where they're moving much more aggressively. These are wine-influenced places, um, moving much more aggressively into cannabis. Do you think Napa is missing an opportunity?
1: No, um, and, and the reason I don't is that I've, I've watched what what's happened in Washington and Oregon, and uh, some of the laws that were passed there to try to encourage small farmers. Uh, you know, And what ended up happening is uh, Oregon and Washington overproduced for the state, and, and you just can't take your production and sell it out of state. Overproduce cannabis. Cannabis, right. Yeah. yeah, you can't take that production and sell it out of state. That's illegal. You can't move it out of state. And California's got the same issue is that we already produce more than, than we need. And so, you know, naturally it's being exported elsewhere. Um, and it's not going particularly through legal channels. Right. Um, you know, the, the, the arguments for cannabis, uh, in terms of legalization, I'm, you know, I'm all for, I, I don't have a problem with that, uh, recreationally or otherwise. Um, but, you know, where you grow it does does make a difference. If you ask the folks down in Santa Barbara who now are dealing with uh, substantially large plots of, uh, of okay. cannabis grows, um, not only is there a, a, an odor issue, um, but, it, it, you know, there's you got fences, white fences with a serpentine wire across the top. Um, right. We still don't have a way to deposit cash. And it's not like the production in Santa Barbara is all going to Santa Barbara it's gonna be spread throughout the state so the the question for a Napa consumer is does it need to be uh, produced produced in Napa in order for you to have you know the right dosage for you or the you know whatever it is you want to use and you know there's a lot of great places that already uh, grow you know exceptional weed you know Mendocino County being one of them uh, so Uh, you know, if we we want to have farms that brand themselves Napa cannabis, you know, the the obvious uh, reason that you do that is because you have somebody that thinks that they're going to lever off the the Napa name. Um, And you don't
0: think that's real?
1: Good business model. I know if you can do it, Um, but, you know, what value does that bring back the county? You know, so far, the, the promises that you've seen from most uh, uh, of the cannabis legislation that's gone through has, has fallen short of, of expectation at this point. But I think we make uh, enough. I think there's more than enough. Um, and uh, I think we're going to have a sustainable uh, culture. Then um, I think we probably should go slow on on the, the notion of growing cannabis inside Napa.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the, you make the argument that a lot of the proponents make, which is that there's a marketability to the Napa name or Napa destination to come and have that as part of your, you know, your wine country experience. Yeah, it
1: doesn't stop your, it doesn't stop smoking weed and, and having, uh, you know, San Somelian and, uh, and salmon dinners. Uh, you can, people can still do all of that. The only question is, is do you
0: need to go? Well, I, I can call ease and have some delivered, you know, before we get off the show today. Right. I yeah, mean, can it's you not, tell me how to do that. It's not, <laughs> it, it's not that hard. Um, I didn't know about that. Um, You know, so you know, and the arguments made that sixty-four percent or over sixty percent of the people voted for legalization of marijuana in Napa County—that's true. But were they voting for local cultivation? And that's kind of where the where the rub is. Yeah,
1: I voted pro. Um, I voted for legalization. Um, I'm I'm after watching the industry evolve here uh, and seeing the problems that it has brought. And I, I don't go to the other side and start talking about crime that much, um, but you know, my, my thing is, is it really needed? Is it sustainable? Is, is it the kind of thing that you really want? And, and my answer right now is, I don't think so, but I'm open.
0: We are about to run out of time. Uh, and I want to ask you a question um, since we're on the subject of, of CBD. You talk about the, the prospect of CBD-infused spirits or CBD-infused beverages uh, in your report. Is it a real threat to wine?
1: Not substantially yet because, um, you know, as it relates to wine today, you, you can't infuse wine with CBD. So that as an alternative. That, that's not really a threat. Um, but as we start to talk about the health components uh, of other beverages... Um, you know, as we talk about Gullet share, I I, I see sports drinks that are help you know help health, more healthy for you is the is the the term uh, better for you is the term um, and uh, and so CBD infused uh, beverages. I mean, the reality is we have no idea what CBD really does. There's been insufficient studies to to really figure it all out, but the the view the narrative is that it's healthy for you. So. You know, yeah, it's I, I, plant based. That's uh, it's right. plant based. That's right. It's green. <laughs> it's and very so green. I, I, yeah. I fully expect to see more and more uh, CBD infused beverages out there and available right now. They have to go through dispensaries largely, largely. Um, but, you know, as laws evolve, um, you know, I think we'll see more and more uh, CBD infused beverages and that will compete for gullet share.
0: So Rob McMillan, I really want to thank you for joining us on The Deep Dive. Where can people get a copy of this report if they want to read it?
1: Yeah, it's online. It's, uh, you know, S- Silicon Valley banks report. So it's really easy to find on svb.com. Uh, you just go online svb.com and look for the wine report and, and you'll find it uh, along with video casts. If you really want to get into it, um, of, uh, me and a panel and things that, uh, we've talked about with respect to the industry that are even deeper than your deeper dive.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Well, um, that's going to do it for us today we are always happy to hear from you and especially welcome your suggestions on future discussions possible guests again you can email us at deepdiveshow@windownmedia.com. show at windownmedia.com twitter and instagram at deep dive show and i invite you to like us on facebook uh, deep dive show i appreciate the help i get from antonio DeWalk and all of my many friends here at kvon napa i want to thank you for joining us this week on the deep dive I'm Larry Kamer, and we'll see you the next time.